Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am going to finish up the book of Mark today. In this audio, we're going to go four verses, Mark 16, or five verses, 15 through 20. We are taking up the time when Jesus has traveled north to meet his disciples. We've already mentioned in the last audio what is recorded only in John chapter 21 the fact that Jesus met seven apostles by the Sea of Galilee. He then traveled to a mountain, an unnamed mountain in Galilee, and he met either his 11 apostles alone or his 11 apostles plus the 500 that are mentioned by Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. The Great Commission to go preach the gospel all over the world was given there. And then he goes back to Jerusalem and tells the disciples to wait wait in Pentecost, to wait in Jerusalem so that the power of the Holy Spirit can come upon them at Pentecost, and then he ascends into heaven. And that's what we're going to do in this audio. So starting in Matthew 28, verse 16, the 11 disciples traveled to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had directed them. Now, of course, it's 11, Judas having been killed. And they traveled to Galilee after they had met, after Jesus had met them two Sunday nights, one on Resurrection Sunday night and one on the Sunday night after Resurrection Sunday night. And then at some undetermined time after that, they headed on out to Galilee. And Matthew doesn't mention, nor does Mark, nor does Luke, the time, the fact that they met Jesus at the Sea of Galilee where they had the draft of fishes, the second draft of fishes, where Jesus rehabilitates Peter and says, do you love me, Peter, three times, then feed my sheep. Jesus ate some fish and some bread, reminding them of the feeding of the 5,000 and the 4,000 and also proving to them that he was not a ghost. And all of that in John chapter 21. And now the disciples travel from there to the mountain in Galilee. Now, Matthew says in verse 16 here, Matthew 28, that this is the mountain where Jesus had directed them. When had he directed them there? Matthew 26:32. This was on late Tuesday of Passion Week. But after I have been resurrected, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. This is Jesus teaching his disciples on the Mount of Olives before he got to Gethsemane. We also know that the angels told the disciples to go to Galilee, or the angel, I should say. Matthew 28, verse 7, this is the angel appearing to the women at the tomb. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. In other words, angel, women, angel tells the women, hey, you women, go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. doesn't mention a mountain, but says Galilee. We're not told when Jesus told them specifically which mountain to go to. It was probably at the time that he was talking to them on Tuesday night at the Mount of Olives on on Passion Week. No one knows where the mountain that he directed them to go to is. Many think with absolutely no proof that it's Mount Tabor up there in the north. Those speculations are fruitless in my humble opinion. Why did Jesus choose a mountain for the rendezvous point? It would be a safe, solitary place. Apparently, over 500 believers met there. Now, now 1 Corinthians 15.6 doesn't say that. If you compare 1 Corinthians 15.6 with Matthew 28.16-20, Robertson puts them in the same time frame. 1 Corinthians 15.6 says he appeared to about 500 brethren at once, but it, Paul doesn't say in 1 Corinthians 15 that those 500 went to that mountain in Galilee. Matthew 28 says they went to a mountain in Galilee, but doesn't mention the 500. So it's a speculation to put them together. Some people do, some people don't. But there's a logical argument that Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown gives that those 500 brothers did meet there all at once at that mountain when Jesus went up there with the 11. Here's what Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown says. Nothing can account for such a number as 500 assembling at one spot, 
but the expectation of some promised manifestation of their risen Lord and the promise before his resurrection, twice repeated after it, best explains this immense gathering. In other words, Jesus had already promised to go up to Galilee. I already mentioned one of those places, or two of those places, actually. And so the word had gotten out that Jesus was heading to Galilee, and so a lot of his disciples went to Galilee, and probably the Pacific Mountain was known. And so they went up there waiting for him. So that makes sense. So I'm going to assume that these 500 are there with the 11 as Jesus is going to give his great commission. Matthew 28:17. when they saw him, they worshiped, but some doubted. The they refers to the 11 apostles because in verse 16, it says the 11 disciples traveled to Galilee. And then verse 17, where we are now, it says when they saw him, that's the 11 apostles. When they saw him, they worshiped, but some doubted. Now the some sounds like it's referring to the apostles. And it could be, but they weren't doubting now. They all believe by now, so that the, it's an aorist tense, which doesn't tell you the time. It tells you it's a point in time aspect. The, 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 it was a point in time that they had doubted it sometime, but whether it was past or present doesn't say it. So in order to solve the problem that they didn't doubt it, that when they saw Jesus on the mountain in Galilee, we can say that they had doubted earlier, of course, doubting Thomas, and then before that, the ten disciples thought the women were full of nonsense when they came and talked to him. And, for example, Luke 24:11. but these words that Jesus had risen from the dead seemed like nonsense to them, and they did not believe the women. And so that could have referred to that, but I think it makes more sense to, to, to shift the reference to the 500 that were there. When they saw him, when they, the 11 disciples, saw him, the 11, they worship, they, the 11 apostles worship, but some of the 500 doubted. In other words, they're seeing Jesus, 500, and they're probably a little bit afar from him. Is that really him? Is that really him? We're going to see later that Jesus came near, and that probably proved to him, to the doubters, that that was actually him. By the way, this idea that the apostles had doubted earlier, doubting Thomas and the 10 thought that the women were speaking nonsense, that's clear. There's another question about the disciples on the road to Emmaus. Now, of course, they doubted at first, too. But, of course, this passage here is not referring to the disciples on the road to Emmaus. It's, it, it's allegedly referring to the 11 apostles. But it's not clear that the apostles in that house on Resurrection Sunday night actually doubted the report of the two apostles on the road to Emmaus. You can make an argument that they did, but it's not provable. For example, here in Luke chapter 24, verses 33 through 35, and they, that's the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, rose up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem and found the eleven gathered together and them that were with them, saying, The Lord is risen and dead and hath appeared to Simon. question is, is who's doing the saying? Barnes and Gill, the commentator Barnes and the commentator Gill, says it refers to the eleven that were saying, The Lord is risen and hath appeared to Simon, which makes it sound like the, the disciples already believe and they're just confirming what the two disciples. The apostles already believe, the eleven already already believe, and they're confirming with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus that, yes, Jesus is risen. But if it refers to the two disciples saying the Lord is risen and hath appeared to Simon, then we have the fact that the apostles, the disciples are reporting, and, the, and later on, and the, and the eleven apostles are still doubting. But anyway, that's so fuzzy, I don't, it doesn't matter. The apostles at some point did disbelieve and gradually Jesus worked over their belief. And at any rate, I don't think that's what he's talking about who doubted. I think it's the, some of the 500 who doubted. Let's go to Matthew 28 verse 18. Then Jesus came near and said to them, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Now again, said to them, said to whom? The 11 or the 500? In my opinion, this is just a speculation. It's all of them. 
He says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth because he was the king now, the resurrected king. He was getting ready to use his authority to commission the disciples to spread the gospel. We're getting ready for the great commission. And that's why he starts out with, I've got authority, so I'm going to give my authority to you. And that's why we need to respect the authority of the apostles and quit saying, well, that's just Paul's opinion. He's not Jesus. That's nonsense. He gave his authority to the apostles. And it says Jesus came near, so apparently he, the 500 and the 11 were gathered together before he got there, and then Jesus approached. And at the approach, some of those doubted, weren't sure that was really Jesus, and then he came closer and John Gill says that this his coming closer is, is what caused those who doubted to now believe, which makes sense to me. Verse 19 in chapter 28 of Matthew. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, the famous Great Commission. Now when it says make disciples of all nations, this does not argue for a quote-unquote Christian nation. There has never been a Christian nation and there never will. I remember... Years ago in Republican Party politics in the South, Christian Coalition got going, started by Pat Robertson, if I remember correctly. And before that, it was Jerry Falwell and the Moral Majority. And there was this idea floating around amongst conservative Christians that America was a Christian nation. And I remember thinking, well, now, you know, Christian nation, Thomas Jefferson wasn't Christian. He cut all the miracles out of the Bible. Benjamin Franklin uh, was quoted as saying, I don't believe in Jesus. And Benjamin Franklin would have French women in his bathtub while he was ambassador to, to Paris. And he obviously wasn't a Christian. There were a lot of people not Christian. Now, it's true that they did, all those deists back then did have Christian morals and principles, thank God, and that was a, bless, a great blessing for America. But that doesn't mean we were a Christian nation. There were some of the founding fellows who were Christian, of course, like they always are. But we need to forget this idea about Christian nation. We, it says make disciples of all nations. It means of people who are in the nations. Now, the nations, we're going away from Israel alone, and now we're spreading to all the world. Matthew 10, verses 5 through 6, when Jesus sent out the twelve on his first missionary trip, on their first missionary trip, he said this. Jesus sent out these twelve after giving them instructions, and he said this, quote, Don't take the road leading to other nations, and don't enter any Samaritan town. Instead, go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So Jesus started out as establishment of his kingdom in Israel, and then he spread it out to the nations. Now, the Jews, of course, had this very parochial idea that the gospel was only for the Jews, and they had to constantly fight that even after Jesus rose and went to heaven. But Jesus, before he left, made it very clear, you're going to make disciples of all nations, not just Israel. Here's a good quote from Isaiah 2:3 to show that the gospel is universal even in the Old Testament. Isaiah 2, verse 3. And many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways, and that we may mark in his path. For the law will go forth from Zion, i.e. from Jerusalem, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So the word's going forth from Jerusalem. It's going out. It's not just staying in Israel. Now, when Jesus says, Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, the them does not refer to the nations. You don't baptize a nation. He's referring to the previous noun, the disciples. Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, the disciples, not the nations. That should be obvious, but I just mention it. The baptizing, of course, is water baptism because only Jesus baptizes with the Holy Spirit. This is talking about disciples baptizing. They're going to baptize in water. 
Now, notice that baptism is singled out as one of the things to be taught, teaching all nations, baptizing. This shows that baptism is very important. And it's something I've noticed in the American church. We don't take baptism nearly important enough, I don't think, in China. Boy, do they take baptism important. So important, in fact, that I've had to emphasize over and over again, you did not get saved when you got baptized. You got saved when you confessed through your mouth and believed that Jesus rose from the dead and forgave your sins. That's when you got saved, not when you got baptized. But the average Chinese Christian will say, oh, yeah, I'm saved. I got baptized on June 17th. But at any rate, it's a, it's a, I'm glad that they overemphasize it compared to us underemphasizing it. It's important. And notice we baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is an obvious statement of the Trinity, as John Gill says. Is it possible for words to convey a plainer sense than these do? And do they not direct every reader to consider the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit as three distinct persons? There's some good Trinitarian theology there. I remember one time some I was with somebody who was baptizing somebody else, and he said, I baptize you in the name of Jesus. And I leaned over and said, and the Father, and the Holy Spirit. There are places, by the way, where it says baptized in the name of Jesus, but that's just short, shorthand for Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We don't want to be like the Jesus-only Pentecostals, the Unitarians, who don't believe in the Father and the Holy Spirit. Matthew 28, verse 20. Teaching them, Jesus continues, to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. I am with you. That's appropriate because Jesus is named Emmanuel. God is with us. And Jesus says, I am with you. Now, of course, that accompaniment of us is spiritual, not physical. He's going to leave them in just a few days when he goes back down to, to Jerusalem and ascends into heaven. But spiritually, he's with us always. Now, it says to the end of the age. What does that age mean? Well, that's, that word age is often controversial. One option is it's to the end of the age of their life. I don't believe that. John Gill denies that. Some say it means to the end of the Jewish age, which ended in eighty seventy. Now, John Gill denies that, but I think he's wrong. I think that's exactly what Jesus was talking about, to the end of the Jewish age, because that's used that way so often in the Scripture. For example, in the Olivet Discourse, which was given just a couple of weeks before this, Jesus told his disciples, they asked, what is going to be the sign of the end of the age? And Jesus said, not one stone is going to be left on the temple, one on top of the other. Well, that's obviously talking about the end of the Jewish age, and so I think that's kind of the way... The vocabulary worked back then when he said age is the end of the Jewish age. But just because, and if that's true, that does not preclude the idea that he's also with us until the end of the world. Obviously, he's going to be with us. He lives in us. The Holy Spirit lives in us. Remember that, he says, I am with you. And, of course, Jesus has an immediate immediate problem here. He's trying to get his disciples bucked up and strong enough to withstand the horrible persecution and the all the the difficulties of starting something. They're starting the Church of Jesus Christ. Got over a billion members today. That wasn't going to be easy. And he said, look, I'm with you. These Jews are going to be persecuting you, and I'm going to go all the way through the persecution. I'm going to be with you until the Jewish age ends, when I destroy them in AD 70, through the agency of the Roman Empire, and I come in the glory of the Father with all my angels, and so forth, all of it discourse. Now notice here in the Great Commission that Matthew emphasizes teaching. Teaching them, teaching the nations to observe everything I have commanded you. Interestingly, a parallel passage in Mark 16:15, which we'll get to in just a minute. Mark says, then he said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to the whole creation. So Mark emphasizes evangelism. Matthew emphasizes teaching. We're supposed to do both. We're supposed to teach and we're supposed to evangelize. That's the Great Commission. And by the way, some people say, well, that Great Commission was only for the apostles. Well, okay, even if it is, it doesn't mean we're not supposed to. I, I think that's a jejune argument, sterile, arid, 
of no use to me. Matthew 20, well, that's the end of Matthew 28. Let's now turn to Mark chapter 16, verses 15 through 18. We'll start first with reading starting at verse 15. Then he said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to the whole creation. This is the Great Commission again repeated in Mark. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will drive out demons. They will speak in new languages. They will pick up snakes. If they should drink anything deadly, it will never harm them. They will lay hands on the sick and they will get well. All right, first of all, I need to point out from in Mark 9 through 20, there's a big debate over whether that text is actually in Mark I think I used to think it was not, but I'm not so sure now. I think there's enough arguments that it should be in there. Most modern translations put it in there. They might put it in brackets, but they do put it in there. So I'm going to assume it's in there. And it says, then he said to them, when is the then? I say, I'm pretty sure it's up there in the mountain, Mount Galilee. According to Robertson, that's how he has it harmonized, that it's uh, when Jesus is speaking to the 500 to the 11 and probably the 500, that's when he said to them, the Great Commission. Now, you notice he says, go into all the world, in verse 15. In other words, don't just hang around Judea, which is what the church actually did until Acts 8, when the Jews persecuted the Jewish church, and the Jewish church then spread out into the Gentile world. What does that world mean, go into all the world? Well, it could mean the Roman Empire. It often does mean that in the New Testament. John Gill denies that it means that here. He says it means the whole planet. We could quote Acts 1.8 in support of that idea that it means the whole planet, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, even to the remotest part of the earth. Jesus gave that on the Mount of Olives a little bit after this when he went back down from Galilee right before he ascended, and he says, you're going to be my disciples, my witnesses, even to the remotest part of the earth. So it sounds like the whole world means the whole world, not just the Roman Empire, which, of course, suits us good too, but suits us well because the Roman Empire is over. Now you notice he says, go into the world, preach the gospel, whoever believes and is baptized. Well, does that mean that you have to believe and be baptized in order to be saved? Does that mean that we have to be baptized to be saved? Well, the short answer to that is the thief on the cross, he was never baptized. He was saved because Jesus said, this day you will be with me within heaven. Today you will be with me in paradise. John Gill also makes the parallel point that Simon Magus went to hell with baptism. Well, I don't know about that. It says that Simon Magus believed. He did do something terrible and try to buy the power of, 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 of praying for the Holy Spirit. He tried to buy it from the apostles. I think it was John. Who were the apostles that went up to Samaria? Peter and John. And he's tried to buy, pay them money for the gift of the Holy Spirit. And that was bad. But that doesn't mean he went to hell. John Gill thinks he did. But anyway, the point about believe and be baptized, let me read the quote again here. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. It can't mean you have to be baptized and believe in order to be saved. What it means is whoever is believed and then does what normally comes after belief, which is baptized. And he just finished saying baptize all nations in the name of the Father. Baptism is very important. But it doesn't mean that it saved them. It just means that baptism follows on belief and is a natural thing. So he mentions it together in one breath here. Whoever believes, and of course, after he believes is baptized, he's going to be saved. Whoever does not believe will be condemned. And folks, that's something we need to remember. The Great Commission also promises hell for those who don't believe. Condemnation by the Almighty God, serious business. Now, it says, whoever 
With verse 17, these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name, they will drive out demons, cessation, and say, yeah, that's just the apostles. We don't have miracles today. Well, they are quasi-deist. They are rationalist. The Bible's full of miracles, and they'll, they'll proclaim those miracles up and down. But then when it comes today, well, we're just going to have to do without miracles. We're apparently stronger than the early Testament church because we have more money and more power and more programs and more ecclesiastical structures and more bullshitki. That's what we've got. We need signs, just as in the book of John, which is signs, signs, signs everywhere. We need everything we've got because we are facing, in the West, the subjugation of the church, the persecution and the eventual dismantling of the Christian church. That's how bad it's gotten. And to say that we can go into the battle without miraculous signs as we preach the gospel and fulfill the Great Commission is like saying, let's go into war without a machine gun, without hand grenades. Well, I don't want to get slaughtered. And cessationists are asking us to get slaughtered. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name, they will drive out demons. That's a sign, driving out a demon. It's, I don't know why. It's, I think some cessationists don't have a trouble with driving out demons for some reason. I don't know. They will speak in new language. Oh, oh yeah, they don't like tongues. They will pick up snakes. Now, let's talk about that. This obviously means pick up snakes accidentally. It doesn't mean that you go around looking for snakes to pick them up. There's no purpose in that. And then there are, of course, snake handling cults that do that. That's nonsense. The way they do it, by the way, is they play the music, those loud, loud rhythmic music, and it hypnotizes the snake and, and pounds him into submission so he's not in a striking mood when, when the snake handlers pick up the snakes. Of course, sometimes that doesn't work and the snake handlers get bit and they end up shuffling off this mortal coil. If they should drink anything deadly, it will not harm them again. That's accidentally. They will lay hands on the sick and they will get well. We should be laying hands on the sick and seeing healing today. I know everybody's not healed. Everybody's not saved either. Does that mean we quit preaching salvation? We need to lay hands on the sick and thank God every time somebody gets well. Now, it turns out that the Apostle Paul actually one time did pick up snakes by accident. Should have, he should have been dead. Acts 28, verses 3 through 5. But when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks, this is when he was, after his third journey, he was on his way to Rome. Uh, where he was imprisoned and the sh he had a shipwreck and ended up, where was it, a Crete, Malta? Malta, I think it was. I forgot, one of the islands there. And when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and laid them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened itself on his hand. Those vipers were deadly snakes. When the natives saw the creature hanging from his hand, they began saying to one another, Undoubtedly this man is a murderer. And though he's been saved from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. In other words, he's going to die. However... Luke continues the narrative. However, he, Paul, shook the creature off into the fire and suffered no harm. So Paul actually fulfilled this prediction of Jesus in the Great Commission. And by the way, just because there's no incidence of people drinking deadly poison without accident in the New Testament, it doesn't mean it didn't happen afterwards. I believe if Jesus said it. I believe he meant it. Take a miracle to protect a Christian evangelist somewhere who might have accidentally drunk something poisonous. Now we're going to turn our attention to Luke chapter 24, verses 44 through 49, as we look at the parallel passage to try to pick up some more detail. Actually, this is referring to when Jesus left that mountain in Galilee and went back down to Jerusalem. And then, of course, he eventually ended up going to Bethany, going to the Mount of Olives, where he ascended into heaven. So starting with verse 44 and 45 of Luke chapter 24, Then he, Jesus, told them, his apostles, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. So Jesus has given a final Bible study to the apostles before he goes to heaven. And he says, look, I've already spoken these words to you. I spoke while I was still with you. 
every, and what was the words that he had spoken to the apostles? That everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Jesus was constantly referring himself to the scriptures. The scriptures pointed to Jesus. And this is why when you interpret the Old Testament prophets, refer them to Jesus. Look to, of course, some of the prophecies refer to historical fulfillments back then. That's fairly easy to pick out. But when it talks about other things that you can't tie to an historical event in the Old Testament, refer it to Jesus because that's what Jesus did. Don't refer it to some future millennium somewhere off in the future. Don't do that. That's what dispensationalists do. We don't want to be dispensationalists. The, the dispensationalists have got it all wrong, in my humble opinion. First of all, let's look at why Jesus called the Hebrew Scriptures the Law of Moses, the Prophets, and the Psalms. That's a common way of doing it. A lot of times the, the New Testament, people in the New Testament will call the Hebrew Scriptures uh, the Law and the Prophets. Well, that's just short for the Law, the Prophets, and the Writings, the three sections of the Hebrew Scriptures. And here it's the Law of Moses, the Prophets, and the Psalms. The Psalms was the first book in the writings section of the Hebrew Scriptures. And so Law of Moses, Prophets, and Psalms is just another way of saying the Hebrew Scriptures. Now you notice his respect that he had for the Hebrew Scriptures. He didn't go around saying, well, you know, there's genocide in there, and there's slavery in there, and therefore uh, God is a racist, and God's a homophobe, and all this BS that you hear liberals, even liberal, so-called liberal Christians, state Jesus had total respect for the law, and so should we as Christians. Now, note how Jesus used the scriptures to teach his disciples. Even though he was physically there in his presence, he went right back to the Bible, to the Hebrew Bible that they had then. This is a good word for the good pietist of American Christianity who only talk about John 3.16 and how good Jesus makes me feel. Are you listening, Southern Baptists? Are you listening, Charismatics? Are you listening, Pentecostals? Are you listening, Nazarene Methodists? Are you listening to just about everybody in the Bible Belt in the South? Read the Bible. Study it. The apostles were studying it right up until the day that Jesus left. Adam Clark says the scriptures were a dead letter without Jesus to explain the scriptures. It takes both the written word and the living word to understand the truth, in other words. Now, Jesus opened up their minds by explaining the Old Testament scriptures, and he did that just as he did to Cleopas and his friend on the road to Emmaus. Luke chapter 24, 27 says this, Jesus then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, Jesus, interpreted for them the things concerning himself and all the scriptures. So all the things in the Old Testament were pointing to him. And I'm going to give you a long list of things that do point to him in just a minute. Now he says, these are the words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. And he doesn't mean literal quotation words. John Gill points out he means the substance, sense, and meaning of Jesus' teaching to them was in the Old Testament. Not literally, necessarily. And in fact, what follows here is not anywhere expressed in so many words. Which in the next couple of verses, we're going to see when it talks about suffer, rise from the third day, repentance for forgiveness of sins, and so forth, that he's going to say this in the Old Testament Scripture. Not in so many words, but the concepts are there. And I'm going to quote many scriptures to show that to you. Now notice, at the very end of his life on earth, he's still trying to get the apostles to understand they had a hard trouble with this, a lot of trouble with this. On Resurrection Sunday afternoon, after Jesus had risen from the dead... They were having a lot of doubt, and in John 20, verse 9, John says this, For they still, the apostles still, did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. The scripture that was repeated to them, or the Old Testament scripture, and then not to mention the fact that Jesus himself orally had told them. I think he said, well, I, won't, I can't quote those from memory, but there's many, many verses. I'll give you one right here. Luke 18, verses 31 through 34. This is previous. I think it was in Capernaum. I'm not sure. It might have been on the way to Jerusalem. But he says this, 
Then he took the twelve aside and told them, Listen, we are going up to Jerusalem. Yes, still in Capernaum. We're going up to Jerusalem. Everything that is written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. For he will be handed over the Gentiles, and he will be mocked, insulted, spit on, and after they flog him, they will kill him. And he will rise on the third day. He told them clearly, I'm going to be resurrected from the dead on the third day. Verse 34 in Luke 18. They understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. So they didn't understand it back then, before the last ministry in Jerusalem, and they didn't understand it on Resurrection Sunday afternoon. And so here Jesus is about to leave 40 days after his resurrection, and he's still trying to explain it to them. Of course, they understood it by now. They went out and they preached. It says they under, he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and that was a successful opening of their minds. They understood the scripture. They're getting ready to preach the gospel everywhere. Luke 24, verse 46 through 47. He also said to them, This is what is written. He refers to the Old Testament scriptures, what is written. The Messiah would suffer and rise from the dead the third day, and repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning at Jerusalem. Now that's a mouthful. At the same time, Luke records what happened here at this meeting right before Jesus ascended. He records this in Acts chapter 1. Let me give you verses 5 through 8 in that chapter. Jesus is speaking, For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Of course, that's referring to uh, 10 days from now when the Holy Spirit fell in Jerusalem in the upper room. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, are you restoring the kingdom to Israel at this time? He said to them, Is it, it is not for you to know times or periods that the Father is set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Now you notice there, he says, You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. And in Luke 24, verse 47, he says, The... Messiah, a repentance of forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed to all the nations beginning at Jerusalem, beginning at Jerusalem. And in Acts 1, verse 8, it says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and then in Judea, Samaria, and all the ends of the earth. So you tie those two things together. It's the same time. It's the same period. Right there in Jerusalem somewhere, Jesus is teaching his disciples to go get the Holy Spirit, get prepared, get filled, and go out and preach the gospel. Now, he says it is written in the Old Testament that the Messiah would suffer. Where is it written in the Old Testament that the Messiah would suffer? How about Psalms 22, verse 1? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from my deliverance and from my words of groaning? That's where the Old Testament said he would suffer. Isaiah 53, verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised and we didn't value him. That's where the Old Testament talks about suffer. Jesus says it is also written that the Messiah would rise from the third day in Luke 24, verse 46. Where does it say, where does the Old Testament say that the Messiah would rise? How about Psalm 16, 9 through 11? Therefore my heart is glad and my spirit rejoices. My body also rests securely, for you will not abandon me to Sheol, to death, to the grave. You will not allow your faithful one to see decay. Well, the only way you're going to not allow someone to see decay is you got to raise them from the dead because when somebody dies they're going to decay you reveal the path of life to me and your presence is abundant joy in your right hand are eternal pleasures that's psalm 19 16 9 through 11 shows that jesus is going to be resurrected that's also quoted in acts by luke isaiah 53 10 through 11 yet the lord was pleased to crush him severely 
When you make him a restitution offers, offering, he will see his seed. He will prolong his days. Prolong his days. That's referring to resurrection. And by his hand, the Lord's pleasure will be accomplished. He will see it out of his anguish, and he will be satisfied with his knowledge. My righteous servant will justify many. How is he going to justify many? He has to rise again from the dead. That, there's, that's not directly stated. It has to be inferred there, but it's easily inferred. Matthew 12, verse 40, Jesus says this, For as Jonah was in the belly of the huge fish three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. And the implications there is after the three days and three nights are over, he's not going to be in the heart of the earth. He's going to come out again. So the Old Testament, Jonah was a type, and Isaiah hints at it very strongly that Jesus is going to be risen from the dead in Psalm, not abandon me to Sheol, quoted in Acts. That's straight out a prophecy of Jesus' resurrection. Okay, so Jesus also says, this is what is written. Repentance for forgiveness of sins will be proclaimed in his name to all the nations. Repentance for forgiveness of sins. Let's look at that. Now, will be proclaimed to all the nations. Let's look, first of all, how that repentance was proclaimed to all the nations. We look in the book of Acts for that. I'm going to read you five, let's see, one, two, three, four verses from Acts that showed that repentance was preached to all the nations. This is all the nations in the Roman Empire. Acts 5.31, God exalted this man to his right hand as ruler and savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. So you see, the early church preached repentance and forgiveness. By the way, how do you get saved? You confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, God raised him from the dead, and you repent and ask Jesus to forgive you for your sins. And the faith, and also there's many, many places that says that you're supposed to believe. So belief and repentance go together. That's how you get your forgiveness of your sins. You repent and you believe. You repent means you turn from your sins. Repentance is a part of belief is what I'm trying to say, and I think too many people try to split those two concepts out. There's a lot of controversy on that, a lot of theological controversy. Let's just say that belief and repentance is what you need to do to get saved. Acts 10, verse 43, all the prophets test about, testify about him. There, Luke says that all the prophets testify about him, that through his name everyone who believes in him will receive forgiveness of sins. Now, I was surprised. I found, let's see how many verses I found in the Old Testament talked about forgiveness of sins. In the Old Testament, prophesying about forgiveness of sins coming. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. I'm going to read them to you in just a minute. This, of course, was testified to in the New Testament in Acts 10, verse 43, referring to the fact that all the prophets in the Old Testament testify about Jesus in the New Testament that if you believe in his name you receive forgiveness of sins. So the prophets testified about forgiveness of sins. Acts 13, 38, therefore let it be known to you brothers that through this man Jesus forgiveness of sins is being proclaimed to you. So the New Testament preachers of the gospel knew exactly what Jesus meant. What the Old Testament prophesied of forgiveness of sins. Acts 26, 18, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that by faith in me they may receive forgiveness of sins and a share among those who are sanctified. So forgiveness of sins is part of the gospel. Now let's go to these Old Testament scriptures that show that forgiveness of sins was foreshadowed and predicted in the Old Testament. Psalm 32 verse 1. How joyful is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. That was from David. And, and Now remember... In Acts 10, verse 43, that verse says, All the prophets testify about him, about Jesus, that everyone would believe or receive forgiveness of sins. And you could question the fact, well, how does David be called a prophet? I don't know about that, but he did say that how joyful is one whose transgression is forgiven. So the Old Testament does talk about forgiveness of sins. 
Of course, it's not talking about people in the New Testament being forgiven. It's talking about people in the Old Testament, namely David himself, whose transgression is forgiven. But they knew about forgiveness in the Old Testament. Daniel 9, 9, compassion and forgiveness belong to the Lord our God, though we have rebelled against them. That's the Old Testament. Scripture talking about forgiveness of sin, still not predicting the future, but it shows that it, the, the concept is there in the Old Testament. Isaiah 9, 6. Now, here's a prediction. For a child will be born for us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. And that peace means peace between God and people, which means that there has to be forgiveness of sins for that to happen. So that's at least a verse that implies forgiveness of sin. Isaiah 52, 7. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of the herald who proclaims peace, who brings news of good things, who proclaims salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Well, salvation implies forgiveness of sins because you can't be saved unless your sins are forgiven. That's another inference. Now, here's one that's more direct, Isaiah 53, 5. But he, Jesus, was pierced because of our transgressions, because of our sins, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. We're forgiven because of what Jesus, we're forgiven for our transgressions because of what Jesus did on the cross. That was a prophecy in Isaiah 53, 5. Next verse, Isaiah 53, 6. We all went astray like sheep. We have all turned to our own way, and the Lord has punished him, punished Jesus, for the iniquity of us all. There, we have been forgiven for our sins, predicted in Isaiah 53. Isaiah 59, verse 20. The Redeemer will come to Zion, and those in Jacob who turn from transgression. The Redeemer will come to Zion to those in Jacob and Israel who turn from transgression. Of course, Jacob is the Old Testament Israel, referring to typologically to the New Testament Israel. The church, the Redeemer will come, the Redeemer will come to Zion. Redemption means to buy you out of your sins, to pay a price to get you free. Jesus paid the price of his blood to set us free from, from sin and death. And that's for those who turn from transgression. Jeremiah 31, 34, No longer will one teach his neighbor or his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least to the greatest of them. This is the Lord's declaration, For I will forgive their wrongdoing and never again remember their sin. Of course, that at least a part of that is quoted in Hebrews, New Covenant times. Daniel 9, 24, Seventy weeks decreed from your people about your people and your holy city to bring the rebellion to an end, to put a stop to sin, to wipe away iniquity. That's a famous prophecy, the seventy weeks prophecy. Right in the middle of that prophecy, after the seventy weeks are over, right there at the time of Jesus' crucifixion, you can do the calculations if you want to get into some good Bible study on that. And what happens at that end of the seventy weeks? It is decreed that iniquity will be wiped away to bring in everlasting righteousness to seal up vision and prophecy and to know it in the most holy place, to wipe away iniquity. Micah 7.13, Who is a God like you, removing iniquity and passing over rebellion for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not hold on to his anger forever because he delights in faithful love. There's another idea of forgiveness and removal of sins in the Old Testament. Zechariah 13.1, On that day a fountain will be opened for the house of David and for the residents of Jerusalem to wash away sin and impurity. There is a direct quote of about how a fountain will be opened. That would be the fountain of Jesus' blood, or it could be maybe a fountain referring to water that cleanses away from sin. But the, the idea is that sin will be taken away it, to wash away sin and impurity. So, Jesus says, all this Old Testament scriptures applies to what you're about to start preaching, beginning at Jerusalem. You're going to proclaim it in his name. That means in his authority. When you say in his name, that means under his authority. Now, this idea of all that has been written, the idea is also mentioned in Luke 24:25. This is Jesus speaking to the disciples in their house the Sunday night of his resurrection. 
As he appears suddenly amongst them, he said to them, How unwise and slow you are to believe in your hearts all that the prophets have spoken. So you see, Jesus constantly referred the events of the crucifixion, the resurrection, and the ascension, and forgiveness of sins, and all that followed. He constantly referred it back to the Old Testament. All the Old Testament prophets have spoken in Acts 10. That's not Jesus, but that's, I forgot who said that. Uh, one of the New Testament figures said that all the prophets have spoken. And now Jesus said here in Luke 24, you don't, you're too slow to believe what the prophets have spoken. So he constantly goes back to the Old Testament. Now this forgiveness of sins that's going to be preached, Adam Clark has a great quote as to what that means. It means the taking away, removal of sins in general, everything that relates to the destruction of the power, the pardoning of the, pardoning of the guilt, and the purification of the heart from the very nature of sin. In other words, complete victory over sin. It might not be instantaneous victory, but it will be a complete victory as we are transformed from image to image, image, from glorious image to glorious image until we attain to the image of Christ. Luke 24, verses 48 through 49, Jesus continues, You are witnesses of these things. Yes, they were. They were with him for three and a half years. And look, I am sending you what my Father promised. As for you, stay in the city until you are empowered from on high. And by the way, that, that's the Home of Christian Study Bible. I am sending you what my Father promised. It's also translated as the promise of the Father. I'm sending you the promise of the Father because we have a problem of when did the Father promise this. Now, the NOA Study Bible says, Joel 2, 28-29, After this I will pour out my Spirit on all humanity. That's the promise of the Father, a promise made by the Father. Then your sons and your daughters will prophesy, your old men will have dreams, and your young men will see visions. I will even pour out my Spirit on the male and female slaves in those days. And of course, that was fulfilled at Pentecost. Here's another verse, Isaiah 44, 3, quoted by John Gill. For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your descendants and my blessing on your offspring. So there's a promise of the Father, promise that the spirit will be poured out. Isaiah 44, 3, Joel 2. Now, Adam Clark quotes John 15, 26, which reads as follows. When the Counselor comes, that's the Holy Spirit, the one I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. That makes the promise of the Father mean the promise that proceeds from the Father rather than the promise made by the Father. However, I just gave you two quotes where it says the Father also promised that he would pour out his Spirit, Joel 2 and Isaiah 44. So it could be either one, both actually. The Spirit proceeds from the Father and he was promised by the Father. By the way, John 15:26, the Spirit who proceeds from the Father, that goes to this huge theological controversy between the Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church, does the Holy Spirit proceed from the Father and the Son, or does the Holy Spirit proceed only from the Father through the Son? And I do not know how in the world they got balled up in such an incredible controversy because it was involved in politics and it ends up in the secular history books and it's constantly talked about. It's the, it's the filioque clause. I, I remember, a, I think it was a graduate student, I heard one time said he was trying to figure out what this filioque clause meant in, in Western medieval history, and he went to a university library, and he said the whole darn bookshelf from top to bottom was filled up with books written about filioque and, and the Son. Does the Holy Spirit proceed from the Father, or does he proceed from the Father and the Son? Well, anyway, that's a rabbit trail that has nothing to do with what we're talking about here, so we'll move on now, and we'll go to Mark 16, 19 through 20. Which reads as follows. So then, when the Lord Jesus has spoken to them, again, this is this now we're on the Mount of Olives, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. This is his ascension we've gotten to finally. 
And they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the word by the signs that followed. Now, notice that the apostles preached with signs that followed. This is, cessationists never mention this verse, they, or they like to avoid it. But the signs that follow, it might explain why the fastest growing churches in the world are Pentecostal and charismatic movements. I saw some good statistics by a mission organization one time that showed that. Even though most people, most Christians in the world are not Pentecostal and charismatic, I think it's only one third are, but the fastest growing movements in the world are charismatic and Pentecostal. And that's despite all the scandals and doctrinal screwiness that often arises, and I do deplore that, and I think it's horrible. But I'm not going to throw the baby out with the bathwater, not when I see people getting saved, because that's what, that's what it's all about, spreading the gospel across this benighted planet so that it might be redeemed from its sin and corruption. So then when the Lord Jesus has spoken to them, spoken to them in verse 19, that this was probably during the 40 days before the ascension or so, between the, well, the 40 days actually between the resurrection and the ascension, but I think it's, that's what John Gill says, but I think it's referring more particularly to just this last little speech he gave to them when he told them to wait for the promise of the Father from on high, and he explained to them how he had fulfilled the scriptures and how the gospel of transgression, forgiveness from iniquity and transgression was going to be spread to all the world beginning in Jerusalem. All of that's what he's talking about. Just before he rose, was risen up into heaven, he went into the right hand of God. The right hand, of course, is the position of authority. It's second only to God's authority, as the NIV Study Bible says. Now, notice that it says that the word was confirmed by the signs that followed. The Lord worked with them and confirmed the word by the signs that followed. Jesus did signs. Was he confirming the apostles? No. He was not confirming the apostles. He was confirming the signs that the apostles did. That's also in the book of Hebrews. I forgot the reference, but it's a verse that people always say, see there, only apostles can do signs. Nonsense. It's the word. That means little old people like me and you can do signs if it means getting people into the heaven, into, king, into the kingdom. Pray for a miracle. I just saw it happen in China. A very dedicated Indian Christian right now saw her father miraculously healed as he was on his deathbed in an emergency ward in a hospital in Shanto, China. No apostle prayed for that man to be raised up from his from the ICU. A Chinese pastor and yours truly did it, and we ain't no apostles. So, it was the word that is confirmed, not the apostles. Now, the NASB has a, an addition here in brackets. The KGV doesn't have. In fact, I've never even seen this before. It's a very questionable manuscript authority. I looked at the ESV Study Bible's note about it and convinced that I don't think it's really in the original text. But since the NASB, the New American Standard, has it, I'll read it to you. And they promptly reported, they, the disciples, apostles, promptly reported all these instructions to Peter and his companions. And after that, Jesus himself sent out through them from east to west the sacred and imperishable proclamation of eternal salvation. Well, the problem I have with that was why would they report all those instructions to Peter and his companions since they were right there listening to Jesus? Why would they need to have it reported to them? I don't think that's part of the scripture. I'm not going to waste any more time with that. So we have now finished the book of Mark. Jesus has ascended into heaven. Let's go to Luke 24 and pick up some more details about the ascension. Verse 50 through 53 of Luke 24 reads as such. Then he, Jesus, led them out as far as Bethany. He led them out from Jerusalem where he was teaching them. And lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he was blessing them, he left them and was carried up into heaven. After worshiping him, they returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they were continually in the temple complex, praising God. That's interesting. Great joy, even though he left them. Boy, he left them in grand style, though did he not. 
They weren't doubters anymore. They spread the gospel, and the gospel spread everywhere to such an extent that you and I, 2,000 years later, believe in the risen Jesus Christ. Now, it says he led them out as far as Bethany. Bethany, of course, is the city where Mary and Martha lived. It's just to the east of the Mount of Olives. If you look on a map of BibleAtlas.org, that's where it is. The NIV Study Bible says that also. And so the NIV Study Bible says the ascension occurred on the eastern slope of the Mount of Olives between Jerusalem and Bethany. So somewhere around in the vicinity of Bethany and Jerusalem, of Bethany, I'm sorry, somewhere near Bethany, Jesus ascended. Now, it's complicated as how they know that. I'm just going to take their word for it because I'm too lazy to go through the, the logic of it. They, Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown say that the ascension was not at the village itself, but on the descent to it from the Mount of Olives. So it was on the way down from the top of the mountain, halfway down to the village on the east, and that's where the ascension took place. Now you notice that in verse 53 in Luke 24 says they were continually in the temple complex praising God. In other words, they left the Mount of Olives and went back into Jerusalem, and they spent a lot of time in the temple. That's where the first believers met before they gathered together in their homes. Acts chapter 2, verse 46. Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple complex and broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with a joyful and humble attitude. The evangelism was done in the temple. The worship was done in the houses, house to house. Acts 3, 1. Now Peter and John were going up together to the temple complex at the hour of prayer at 3 in the afternoon. Acts 5, 21. In obedience to this, they entered the temple complex at daybreak and began to teach. Acts 5.42, every day in the temple complex and in various homes, they continue teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. So in the temple and in homes, they went back to Jerusalem and preached this new, about this kingdom of God that Jesus had so thoroughly prepared them for. Notice that Jesus was blessing the disciples as he went up into heaven, lifting up his hands in verse 50, Luke 24, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he was blessing them, he left them up and carried them to heaven. Carried, he was carried into heaven, blessing the disciples as he went. That's why they had great joy. They went into Jerusalem, into the temple complex. All those verses I read was after Pentecost. The first thing they did when they went to Jerusalem was to wait for the Holy Spirit to come upon them. They were blessed, as John Gill says, with a, large, a larger measure of the Spirit. Quote, he blessed them with larger measures of grace and with more spiritual light and understanding into the scriptures of truth and with much inward peace of mind and with the fresh discoveries of pardoning love, which is very eloquent. way <laughs> of saying all the blessings that we get from the Holy Spirit. Now let's finish off this account of the ascension by looking at the account that Luke gives in Acts chapter 1, starting with verse 9. I'm not going to comment on this, just read it. And when he had said these things, as they were looking, looking, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they were looking steadfastly into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which also said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye looking into heaven? This Jesus which was received up from you into heaven shall so come in like manner as ye beheld him going into heaven. And there's a promise that Jesus is going to come back physically, again, against the hyper-preterist heretics who don't believe that Jesus is coming back physically because they say he already came finally at eighty seventy. I do believe he came in judgment in eighty seventy in Jerusalem, but he didn't come finally. He's going to come again. Just like you saw him go up into heaven, he's going to come back bodily. Ladies and gentlemen, that ends our discussion of Mark and the events of the post-resurrection events after those first two Sunday nights in Jerusalem. Jesus appearing to his disciples in Galilee and then with his apostles in 
Jerusalem and his ascension into heaven from the Mount of Olives. We will take up the book of Luke starting with chapter 1 in the next audio and I hope you enjoyed this one.